0: It's good to see you guys on this side of the baptismal. <laughs> good morning, Live in Hope Bible Church. Again, it is great to be with you. My name is Pastor Ryan Baer. It's my privilege to get to preach to you the Word of God this morning on such a special day. Before we jump into it, let's turn to the Lord and ask for his blessing during this time. Father God, we worship you, the transcendent almighty, all-knowing, all-wise, Omniscient, powerful God. The God who works mysteriously in ways we don't always understand. But as people of faith, you work to make us more like you. We thank you, God, for your provision, for all the blessings that you have given us. We thank you, God, that you've revealed yourself to us so that we can know you. God, I pray this morning that you'd work in our hearts. You'd speak through me, that we'd grow in our faith, in our understanding of you, that we grow in our love for you and we grow in our passion to live out a life as a follower of Jesus. Father God, thank you again for Elijah. Thank you again for Aiden and what you've done in their lives. Please be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is 2022, and guess what? There's a new threat. I know you might be thinking, well, I've heard about threats. Is it another virus, another variant, another biological thing going around? Sadly, it is something else. I know that's probably the last thing you wanna hear, that in 2022, we have a new threat. But it is a danger. In fact, it's more dangerous than lightning or being struck by lightning. You're far more likely to fall prey to this threat than to be bitten by a shark. And in fact, this threat, it lives in almost every single one of our pockets. This threat is the selfie. The selfie, taking a picture of yourself with your cell phone. In fact, there's been research done in the last couple years, there's been hundreds of deaths from people taking their selfies, using their selfie stick, trying to capture life's highs, but being brought into life's lows. And I want to show you a sign, in fact. This is found in Mumbai, India. In 2016, Mumbai became the first city in the world to have a no-selfie zone. You are trying to get that perfect picture? 17 bucks, so it better be worth it. Since 2016, several other cities have enforced No selfie zones, because people are going crazy for these things. We actually might find it here in America pretty soon, because people in national parks have been trying to take a selfie with bears and with moose and things like that. You can see another sign, danger, no selfie sticks here. And according to the Washington Post, there's a new term for this whole phenomenon. It's called selfie side. And the biggest cause of death with selfie side is Drowning. It's crashing vehicles. It's being using firearms irresponsibly, like Lachlan told us about last week. And so, the bottom line from this story is this: our drive to be noticed is literally killing us. And it speaks to a deeper level about the world and the culture that we live in. We live in a culture of the outrageous. And we live in a culture where our attention is monetized. So many things are vying for our focus and for our attention. And so nowadays, only the craziest, only the most outrageous, only the most spectacular, only the most beautiful, only the most popular get our attention. And so we can fall into a trap of thinking well, if I'm to matter, if my life is to be important, then I need to be noticed. If not, I'm just passing by. No one cares, no one sees. And this is what drives the social media. We want someone, anyone out there in the ether to give us a little validation, to let us know that our life does matter, that we're smart, that they like what we're eating on Friday night, that we're doing things right. And I know when talking about this, some of you might think, well, that's just those millennials and their social media, but it actually affects every stage of life. When you're a child, it's pretty obvious you have this need to be noticed by your parents. You want their affirmation, their validation, letting you know that you matter. As you turn into a young adult in high school, in college, you want that from your peers. You especially want that from the opposite sex. As you get older as an adult, you might think, well, I'm beyond that. I don't care what people think. But do you really? Really? Most of us care what our boss thinks, what our spouse thinks, what other people in our neighborhood thinks. I mean, we take care of our lawn for a reason, right? We want to look put together. we got to manage some sort of image. And even in the golden years, as you're rolling down the halls of a senior living facility, we care about what our grandchildren think, about our children, about Betsy next door. And here's the deal. Because we feel like attention makes us worth something or matter, we feel trapped. We're trapped because we're defined by our followers. What's interesting is the Bible gives us a solution to this that we probably wouldn't think about. It wouldn't be the first thing that we jump to. The solution is prayer. Prayer. You might think, well, Pastor Ryan, how does prayer free me from the court of public opinion? How does prayer let me know that my life actually matters and is important? Well, we're going to get the answer from Jesus' lips here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. And as you're turning there, just a brief recap about where we are at in the book of Matthew. We've been digging into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his most famous teaching. And in this sermon, Jesus is telling his followers, this is the new way to live. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a citizen of King Jesus's kingdom, this is how you should live. And chapter five is hard. It steps on our toes. Because Jesus says, it's not good enough just to be like those religious leaders and do the right things, have the right behavior. Actions matter, but you know what else matters? The heart. We must have an exceeding righteousness. We must have the same desires, the same hopes, the same things we want as God. And as we go into chapter 6, Jesus takes a look at the three chief acts of the religious people of the day. We saw that he talked about fasting, we saw that he talked about giving to the poor, and today we're going to look at prayer. And in this text, we're going to see two truths about pure prayer and a way that we can make this have action in our lives, a way we can apply it. So two truths about prayer and a way we can apply this. You can follow along as I start reading in Matthew 6, verse 5. And the Word of God says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So, as we dig into Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, the first truth we see about pure prayer is that pure prayer values intimacy more. Than publicity. Pure prayer is more interested in the behind the scenes than in the feature presentation. Jesus starts off in verse 5, and when you pray, so he's assuming that we're going to pray. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And if we were to stop there, it would seem like, hey, these hypocrites they're not too bad. They love to pray. They're doing great. But then we get that next line. We see that it's a fraud. We see that it's a con. When we read why they want to do this, it's like there's some late night TV salesman. It's just such a sham. Wow. He continues on, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that They may be seen by others. So now we see the truth. Now we see their intentions. They want to be seen. They want to have people think that they're the most superior religious people. They want to be carved into the Mount Rushmore of morality. And Jesus says in verse five, that truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They might get a little social clout, They might be lifted up in people's imaginations, but that's all there is for them. And with prayer, there's something much better that is offered. So Jesus corrects this and he says, but when you pray, again, assuming you do it, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus contrasts praying in public Versus praying in private. Now think about this. Is Jesus saying it's bad to pray on the street corner? Is he saying it's bad to pray in the synagogue? No, public prayer is okay. If we're praying in public, we should be pointing people back to God, back to the one we're praying to. He doesn't forbid that. He forbids it with the motive to just be seen as holier than thou. And Jesus talks about us praying in private. And the reason we pray in private is it's a little test of our motives. No one else can see you, no one else is looking. Instead, there's just an audience of one, God himself. And it really gets us to the point of prayer. We pray to know God, to seek him. Other people aren't involved. We're not trying to showcase our spirituality. It's to connect with God, to have that intimacy with him, to know and to be known, and not put up this fake relationship. And so these words, they step on our toes a little bit. We have questions we need to ask ourselves. Do we pray more often and more passionately in private or in public? Is our Uh, public prayer life, just a snapshot of our private prayer life. If we can't answer yes to that, the truth is Jesus needs to correct us. We're hypocrites. When I think about fake relationships and fake intimacy, I can't help but think of a lot of the celebrities in our world. Now, I'm not suggesting you go watch entertainment tonight or try to keep up with all the celebrity gossip you'll probably be losing brain cells as you do that. But if you just look at some of these examples, they're on all the newsstands as you go to the grocery store, you can see how volatile celebrity marriages and relationships are. For example, Nicolas Cage, he probably should have focused on his wife instead of searching for a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Because his first marriage, four days. That's how long it lasted. Eddie Murphy and Tracy Edmonds, two weeks. Kim Kardashian's first marriage, seventy-two days. And we might wonder, well, why? why is this so bad? Why did they end their relationships so much? Sure, there's a host of different factors, but the biggest one is the limelight, is the publicity of it all. It makes us wonder: is this just a sham, or is there real love here? Especially in the case of Kardashian. She sold the rights of her marriage ceremony to be on TV for $18 million. Is this real intimacy or is this just a public show? In the same way, is our relationship with God, is it coming from real intimacy or do we just put on a public show? Jesus shows us that pure prayer values intimacy more than publicity, really connecting with God in that way. And here's the great news. We talked about this need we have to be noticed by others, to be seen, to get their attention. But when we're private with God in prayer, we realize whose attention really matters. The Lord of all creation, the Lord of the cosmos, the God who created all that there is, gives us his attention. That matters a whole lot more than any person here on earth. So, pure prayer values intimacy more than publicity. The second truth we learn about pure prayer is that pure prayer puts God and us in our proper places. Pure prayer helps us know our role and where we stand. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus corrected one error in praying. And in verse seven, he corrects another. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So it was a lot different back in Jesus' day than in ours, because even the non Jewish people, even the non religious, prayed regularly. They had all sorts of different gods. The Jack and Jill next door, they were praying. They could pray to the God of rain so their crops could grow. They could pray to the God of fertility. They could pray to all sorts of these different gods. And Jesus describes their praying in verse 7. He says they heap up empty phrases. Or some of your Bible translations might say vain repetition. And so Jesus paints this portrait of these people going all Shakespearean in their prayers. Beautiful, flowery language, poetic sayings. But he also points out, in that phrase, empty phrases, it comes from the Greek babble. And so they're just talking. They're turning off their brains and they are running their mouths, just going through the motions, saying the right prayers. In verse 8, Jesus says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus says, don't do that. Why? Why? It's because we worship a different God. To the God of the Gentiles, they need to be reminded. They need to be given info about what's going on. So you better put together a pretty persuasive speech. Like a lawyer, you better prove your case to those false gods to maybe have them be interested. They're ignorant. They're also hesitant. We need to convince them or just try to break their will to give us good things. It reminds me of a child and their parent. The child's asking for a cookie. Hey, Mom, can I have a cookie? No. Hey, Mom, can I have a cookie? No. Hey, Mom, can I have a cookie? No. Imagine that for another three hours. What happens? Eventually, yes, please stop. Anything to stop saying that. It was a battle of wills the child outlasted. Well, that's how these Gentiles approached their gods, hesitant, unwilling, and ignorant. But Jesus says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The God of the universe isn't like that. If you have a false view of God, you're going to have a false view of prayer. God knows what you need. He knows what you need before you even ask him. He cares. I know when you hear that, some of you might think, well, what's the point? If God knows what we need, if God knows, why tell him this is an exercise in futility. We're just wasting time here. But that's not true. We pray for many reasons. We pray because God commands us, but we also pray because prayer changes us. A minute ago, I said intimacy is knowing someone and being known. God knows us, but in prayer, when we have intimacy with God, we know who he is. It's an exercise for us to say, our hope for the future is in you, Lord. It's an exercise for us to tell God, I trust in who you are and in your promises. It's an exercise for us to cast our anxieties and our cares on the God of the universe. It's an exercise to ultimately say, God, we are totally dependent on you. It's an exercise to say, all good things come from you, Lord, and we know you're a good and loving God. We can expect this to happen. And so far, Jesus instructs us on prayer. He says, Don't make it this vain show. Be sincere. Don't be mechanical like the Gentiles. They turn off their brains to turn on their mouths. Our prayers need to be sincere and they need to be thoughtful. And you might say, Okay, I understand that's the way prayer should be, but what if that's not how I feel when I'm praying? What's the antidote? How could I stop some hypocrisy? Or how could I make my prayers more thoughtful? Well, Jesus helps us out. This is his sermon to his followers, and so Jesus gives us his famous model prayer. Famously, this is called the Lord's Prayer, but you know, John 17 might be a better place to call that the Lord's Prayer. That's Jesus' prayer to God. This is a prayer that Jesus gives as an example to his followers. You'll notice in verse 9, he says, pray then like this, like this i got to stop and say it's pretty ironic that immediately after Jesus talks about us praying by turning off our brains and just reciting things, we get to the prayer that's recited more and memorized more than any other. It has a danger for us to turn off our brains while we memorize and while we say this prayer. So we got to watch out for that. But Jesus says, if we want our prayers to be sincere, if we want them to be thoughtful, the key is... To refocus on who God is, to remember who we're talking to. Do you know who you're talking to? He begins by saying this Pray then, like this in verse 9 Our Father in heaven. So Jesus begins with this stunning, stunning way of speaking to God Our Father, our Father. And to the Jews back then, this would have been shocking. Because this is too close to home. God is your father. You have this close of a relationship with him. This is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. The God, we won't even say his name. He's so holy. He's so other. He's so transcendent. And yet, for the followers of Jesus, we have a closeness to him. A closeness like a father. I need to say that for some of us, we can read that description. We can read who God is. God is our father. And we love that. You know, our experience of our dads on earth gives us a great image, a great metaphor of how God cares for and provides and loves us. You had a great dad. He did those things for you. He cared for you. But I also know for others that hearing God described as a father is difficult. You might not like it. You've had pain. Your father brings up anger. He wasn't the best dad to you. And so this can be tough to think of God as father but for whether you had a great father or a not so great dad i'll tell you this that we can place our hope in god our father he's everything we've ever wanted a father to be he loves for us he loves us perfectly he cares for us he provides for us everything you have in life is given to you by him he even disciplines the one he loves so we can know him more and live a life as we were supposed to live it in relationship with him and on mission for him. So Jesus tells us about this incredible closeness that we have with God, our Father, a loving, caring, gentle God who cares for our every need, who welcomes us with open arms like the, the father of the prodigal son but then Jesus gives us another description of God. See, Jesus isn't okay with us just having a half picture of who God is because then we're really worshiping a false God if we don't understand who he is. Jesus shows us our Father, this imminent God, but then he continues, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. To be holy is to be set apart, totally other. God is completely other than his creation. And so we see here two things that are held up together, God's closeness, his imminence, but also God's transcendence. He is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-holy God, the God that experiences every moment of time continuously, simultaneously, a God that we can't fully know, a God that still has a bit of mystique and mysteriousness to him. Jesus shows us that this is who you are praying to. And when you focus on who God is, it puts you and God in your proper places. He continues on with three requests because of this revision and refocus on God. We saw one a minute ago, hallowed be your name. That's praying that God's name be revered, that God's name be uplifted. And if you think about it, it's a unique prayer. You're literally asking God to change your heart so you can hallow his name. It's another way of saying, God, make me holy so I view you correctly. Jesus then continues in verse 10, your kingdom come. And we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew presents Jesus as the king that was promised. And we've said that God is in authority and he's sovereign over all creation, over all the cosmos. There's not one maverick molecule. But in another way, God's kingdom is the visible manifestation of his rule here on earth. When Adam and Eve sinned, it became the domain of Satan and darkness, and God is on his kingdom program to reclaim the whole world to be his yet again in that way. And so by praying your kingdom come, we are praying and saying, God, grow your kingdom here on earth. Make people come to faith. Make people get baptized like we saw today. Do your work And at the same time, we're saying, come again, Lord Jesus, because the kingdom will be fully here when Jesus is reigning on earth. And lastly, Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes we get caught up on God's will. And a lot of times we think about God's will and what's God's direction? Where am I supposed to go? What's this perfect path in life? But more often than not, you'll read in Scripture, God's much more concerned about our character and who we are than the specific job or the specific places we go to. He's more concerned with that heart, that righteousness that we need. And so by praying this or saying, God, make my desires more like yours. Your will is done in heaven, your sovereign plan, but also all your desires for morality. Make that happen here on earth. And I'll tell you this, many of you today, I know, have heard this prayer many times. And the model prayer of Jesus, it's pretty easy to babble. It's pretty easy to be a babbler with it. But if we sincerely and thoughtfully pray to this, it's a revolutionary prayer. Think about it. So many times, we're so concerned with our name. We love getting other letters behind our names for degrees we've gotten. We love having our names on our postcards and on notary paper. We love our name when it's on the internet or in the press. We love our reputation. We're so concerned about our kingdom. We got a boss. We got to build an empire. We got to have all the status symbols, the possessions, the money. We get so concerned about our will. We want things our way. And when we don't get it our way, we pout and we fight and we don't like it. But this prayer flips all that on its head. Instead of being concerned about our name, our kingdom, and our will, if we pray this prayer sincerely, we're more concerned about God's name being holy, about what we can do to be on mission for his kingdom here on earth right now, and about his will being done. And guess what? That means yours isn't always going to be done. This big shift happens when we know who we are talking to. I have a couple friends who sometimes have said things and spoken to people and they didn't realize who they were talking to. I think it's a pretty common human experience. Sometimes we say things and we just cringe. Maybe you say something bad and that person that you spoke about is like right behind you or you didn't realize who you're talking to. For example, I had a friend once who said, say hi to your mom for me. He texted that. And his wife was out to lunch with her mom and he thought he was texting his wife. But he didn't text his wife that. He texted his friend that, whose mom had passed away three days earlier. Ooh. I also know about a mother who had a son that played peewee football. And the coach of this football team was brash. He was cussing out these kids. He was mean. He was unapproachable. Her son wasn't getting much playing time. And so she was frustrated about this. And one day she saw a friend and she started to vent some of her frustrations about This coach, and she let it all out and then realized she was talking to the coach's sister. (laughs) Oh, cringe worthy things. Well, we can be embarrassed, we can be cringing. Sometimes disaster happens if we don't know who we are speaking to. And so Jesus emphasizes that the beginning of his prayer is refocusing on God. And there's two ways we typically go wrong as Christians living today. Sometimes we lose half of the vision of who God is, and we stick with a warm, gooey Christianity. We emphasize so much God's closeness to us, his imminence with us, that we really boil down some bigger things of the faith. Sin becomes mistakes or bad regrets. We lose the gravity of the cross when we do this. It's just this warm, fuzzy, feel-good type of Christianity, living your best life now. That's what God wants for you. And there's an aspect of truth to that, as we saw Jesus say here, our Father. But we can't lose the other aspect of his transcendence. Sometimes we swing the other way, and we become crusty Christian curmudgeons. We emphasize God's transcendence so much that he's this unknowable concept, this philosophical theory, let alone a person, let alone our Father. He becomes ultra-terrifying, ultra-mysterious. We have so much reverence, but we feel like we personally don't know him at all. So these are two things we must balance when we view God and we pray to him, his transcendence and his imminence. So what do we do? How do we put this into action? Well, this week, I want you to spend time getting to know your Father. Spend time getting to know your Father. And some of you might think, oh, perfect. I know where this is headed. I need to pray. Done. I understand. Well, if you think about it, if prayer was the application of this, that could basically be the application every single Sunday for the rest of our lives. The same thing. Pray, 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 pray. So I want to make it a little more specific to what we're talking about today. I want you to pray a specific way three times this week. Three times. You can write down the days you want to do this. Three times this week. So when you pray in this specific way, these times that you've designated, you'll notice in the sermon notes, which for those of you viewing online are on our church website, there's this little table here in your sermon notes. In this table here, I've tried to describe some of God's descriptions or his attributes in these two poles of his immanence being with us and his transcendence being totally other. And in these times, pick one attribute from each side and pray that, uh, talk to God about that attribute. Worship him for that. Say, God, thank you so much for caring for me. I know you are a caring father. You actually love me. You have so much going on in the world and in the universe and in the Milky Way galaxy that you actually listen to me. Thank you. And then worship God. God, you are the God of the universe, which means that my little mind can't fully understand who you are. I thank you for being mysterious. I thank you for being other. I can understand you, but I can't fully grasp you. If I could, that would make me God, and I'm a pretty lousy God. So you can pray using one of these descriptions from both sides. You'll notice there's some empty bullet points there. You can write down other attributes of God that fill into this. But this is an exercise for you to get to know the God that you are praying to. Some of you know, but I was almost a genius. Almost. I was training to be one. At least that's what my old employer, Apple, told me. See, to make it through seminary, to pay my way through, I used to work at the Apple store, dealing out cell phones. And I was a salesman, uh, which required zero skill, probably the easiest sales job ever. I was more of a color consultant, green or red. Awesome, good job. People knew what they wanted when they came in. But I also did some minor repairs, and that was a lot more tricky, and people were a lot more angry when it came to that stuff. And I'll never forget one day I was leaving class. It was my Hebrew class. And my Hebrew professor said, Hey, Ryan, I know you work at the Apple store. Can you help me out with my phone? I thought, Well, I'm not on the clock, but Hebrew is really hard. So, any way I can get brownie points of the Hebrew professor, I'm going to take that. If you're going to seminary, listen to that. Anyway, so I got my Hebrew professor's phone, and she pulled it out of her purse, and I couldn't believe what I had seen. This is the year 2015, early 2016. And she had a phone from like 2004. I'm pretty sure it was the second iPhone. Not the original, but the second one. And I, it hadn't been updated in years. I was surprised it turned on. There was one of those gigantic battery packs on it. So it was like this big. And so it became obvious to me what needed to happen. She probably wouldn't like the answer, but it was, look, you need to update the software on this thing for this to work. And the only way you can do that is by paying 1,000 bucks. For a new phone. As I was thinking about that story, sometimes we can be like an iPhone. Sometimes we might need a new little software update, a new way of seeing who we are and who God is. Sometimes it has bugs in it that need to be tweaked. And lucky for us, we have the best processors in the world. We don't need to upgrade in our hardware. But we do need to truly view God correctly. And here's the beauty. We talked at the beginning of this message about how all of us go through this world wanting to be noticed, wanting attention, wanting that validation from others. And I said, prayer is the answer. Well, here's how it all ties in together. When we have that intimacy over publicity with God, we realize that he gives attention to us and we don't really need that from other people when the God of the universe has given it to us. And when we remember that we're praying to our Father in heaven who is holy, we can remember that that God, the God who sees all, the God who experiences all simultaneously, he listens to me. He cares about me. That means I matter. That means you matter. God cares about us. This can free us from the slavery we feel To our followers, instead of being defined by our followers, when we pray correctly, we are defined by the one we follow. So today, this week, pray to God. Pray to your Father in heaven. Spend time getting to know your Father. Let's pray. God, you are truth. You are the standard of goodness and of justice. Lord, thank you for being truth. Thank you that we don't live in some relativistic world, but we know that there is reality, there is truth, and it all begins with you. We worship you as the God of truth who speaks truth to us in the Bible We worship you, God, as you reveal the truth to us. We couldn't find it on our own, but you reveal who you are. Thank you, Lord, for being the true God. And God, we also worship you that as small as we are and as infinite and huge as you are, that we can come to you, that through putting our faith in Christ, we can pray to you, you hear our prayers, you listen to us. Thank you for being an approachable, loving Father. I pray for myself and for everyone here today that we leave this place with a better vision, a refocusing of who you truly are and who you have revealed yourself to be. Thank you for your care, your love, and your faith. And thank you, God, for cleansing us from our sins, white as snow. Amen.